My name is Melissa Leach, and I'm director of the Institute of Development Studies, um, locally based at the University of Sussex. And we've supported some of the, the briefings and background research which have led to this event and have organised the event today. Um, and I'd really just like to say that I don't think it could be on a more important topic. What we try to do at IDS is connect up local issues with global ones to think about big issues like tackling inequality and employment and economic growth, but in ways that make sense to people and are inclusive of people in all their diversity. And we work in a lot of locations around the world. And increasingly, we do so in ways that connect up what's happening locally, including in Brighton, with um, things occurring in Africa, in Asia, and Latin America. And the future of work and the rise of digital technologies, the opportunities it, pre it presents, but also the challenges, I think is par excellence one of those issues that actually connects us and yet um, has all sorts of very diverse implications for people in different places. So I'm really delighted that for our event today, we really couldn't have a, a, a better panel, I think, to think about both the global and local dimensions of the future of work and will robots take your job or my job or anybody's job. So um, we're going to hear first from Becky Faith, who is the co-leader of our digital and technology cluster at IDS, and she's going to bring an international dimension to some of this. Then we're going to hear from Jenny Lloyd, um, who is based in Sussex with the Purpose Lab and Wired Sussex. And then we're going to hear from Karen Cham, who is the academic lead of the Brighton Digital Catapult Centre and also a professor of digital transformation design at the University of Brighton. I think that's a very, very cool title. So, um, fantastic, all-female panel. Um, and as I said, I very much hope Chiamura, who has a huge amount to bring to this debate from a policy perspective, will be joining us halfway through. But let's start. So, Becky, over to you. Thanks a lot, Melissa. So, at IDS, in our work on digital and technology, we look um, at digital inequalities. And this is one of the key axes of inequality in the, um, in the world today. Um, both in terms of access to technology and people's ability to make use of them, to make a difference to their lives and to affect development outcomes. And we live in, we work across disciplines and themes, so we work in collaboration with other academics, um, working on topics ranging from health to um, <coughs> green transformation. And we work uh, looking at how these issues can be addressed locally and globally, and this reflects my own experience. I worked in the tech industry in Brighton for many years, and then um, I did uh, I worked in the international development and technology sector as well, but I also worked um, for a, a digital inclusion charity in Brighton and looked at low-income women's use of mobile phones. And from this, you get a real understanding that these issues of digital inequality are, are global. They affect people in the same ways in um, Nairobi as in Bevendine in Brighton. So IDS, we're really interested in looking at how technology is going to affect the future of work. We ran a digital summit on the future of work earlier this year with the support of um, the Department of International Development and the SRC, bringing together lots of different stakeholders from um, academia, policy makers, people from Facebook, uh, the Deputy Minister for Labour from South Africa, to look at how automation is going to affect the future of work, particularly in developing countries. So this is a global issue. So in Brighton, um, automation is going to affect the digital economy, and um, Karen's going to talk about that. So what happens when the thousands of people are employed as um, coders in Brighton, they, their work can be automated. People working in call centres in Brighton, but it also affects people in countries like Bangladesh and India, so call centre workers in those countries, and people working in the garment industry, because automation of the um, garment industry is, is rapidly approaching. 
So IDS are approaching the, the policy impacts in different ways, and our Green Transformation Group is looking at how policies on green jobs might be a way to address these impacts. Um, our research programme on growth and equal opportunities for women, women which is also funded by DFID, looked at, looks at how unpaid, unpaid care might be the, um, and women's uh, role in balancing unpaid care and, um, and work might be a way to address their engagement in the economy. So what are these impacts on automation? They are, although ever since the uh, levellers were protesting about automation, there's always been waves of industrial development um, impacting on employment. So this is, this is nothing new, but um, we're starting to think that this might, this might be different, and it's having economic and political impact. So research out this summer showed that workers who were at risk of having their jobs automated were more likely to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, so that might tell you something about the kind of potential political and disruptive impacts. So, and in developing countries, the impact might be much worse. So, research shows that impact to um, exposure to automation is negatively con correlated with GDP. So, the poorer the country, the more susceptible it is. And also, some research shows, although this is contested, that women might, more be, might be more at risk. And, but generally, we know that workers with lower skill levels, particularly workers with lower digital skill levels, will be more at risk. So in that group of programmers whose work might be automated, there's going to be one who you'll keep on, and it'll probably be the one with the, the highest level of skills. So digital skills and access are absolutely vital to our, our ability as a, as a society to resist the shocks of, um, the shocks of automation. But women are much less, in global, if you look at this picture globally, women are much less likely to own mobile phones, and poor urban women are much less, 50% less likely to have access to the internet than, than men. But this is also an issue in the UK. Like, we mustn't be complacent about this. And I know this from my, from my own research, which looked at um, low-income women, homeless women, and how they were, they were completely dependent on their mobile phones for internet access. Shockingly, 22% of disabled ad adults in the UK in 2017 have never used the internet. That's from the Office of National Statistics. And work done by Citizen Online in Brighton estimate that 30,000 adults, that's just in Brighton alone, are at risk of digital exclusion. So that tells us something about how this is a both a, a global and a local issue. But this impact, this job loss, isn't a given. Um, so policies, activism, interventions by different stakeholders does, does make a difference. Um, we need more research on the impacts in developing countries. And we need to look at this from a global, cross-disciplinary perspective, understanding the potential of things like green jobs, um, fo a focus on building digital skills and access to an open internet and looking at the impact on the most marginalised. And now we're going to hear from Jenny, who's going to talk about more broadly about the issue of what does decent work look like yes. in a future <laughs> automating world. Um, yeah, we were asked to consider the question, uh, how do we ensure decent work in a digital era? Um, I should probably say who I am, actually. Uh, so uh, I'm a consultant. I work in Brighton. My background is in uh, digital design and development. Um, we just realised that we probably all started uh, along this route um, in the early 90s before the internet, which is, or before the web, which is uh, quite amusing for me anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, Purpose Lab is uh, a one-woman band consultancy uh, working on place-based uh, creative innovation strategies and skills development. But I also wear some other hats. So um, I'm the chair of the Brighton Digital Festival, which uh, is actually taking place at the moment. So uh, if you happen to be wandering around the seafront last night, you might have seen some projections. That's part of the festival. And I'd encourage you to uh, look at brightondigitalfestival.co.uk uh, and see any other uh, fantastic events that are on, if you've got time in what's probably a very busy uh, weekend. 
Uh, and I'm also director of Wired Sussex, which is um, a member organisation which uh, advocates for and supports Brighton's uh, digital cluster, uh, Sussex's digital cluster, I should say. Um, should we say hello? Hello. Gee, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to put you on uh, after Jenny and Karen are done. That would be fantastic. I'm sorry, uh, we've just been queuing to be be accredited as a Labour Party member. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> okay, so, um, so, so back to the question, which is uh, how do we ensure decent work in a digital era? Um, uh, as a designer, then, my approach to any kind of problem is to try and actually work out what the brief is, what the, um, what the question underneath is. And so I started thinking about this question um, as a design brief. And so... I started to think, well, what does decent work mean? Uh, which led me on to think about what's the purpose of work. So I, need, I think we need to evolve our understanding of what work is and why we do it. So um, before the Industrial Revolution, work was whatever you happened to be born into. Um, and so if your dad was a peasant, you'd be a peasant. Um, obviously, industrial era, uh, the move away from the land and towards the cities, then uh, labour becomes an exchange um, of, of time for the ability to earn a living. We've moved from post-industrial to probably post-knowledge economy now. And, uh, and so in that instance, what does work become? So some people are calling or framing this as a conceptual era, so a move away from knowledge-based work into something that's actually um, less about knowledge and more about conceptual and creativity. And that means that uh, we need to think about work as being uh, for creative workers doing non-routine work. So routine work is automatable. Um, the uh, opportunities for work are to think about things that actually can't be automated. And so there's an opportunity for each worker to become uh, what we might term a free agent, where work can be a vehicle for autonomy and creative self-expression and a way for each individual to reach their full potential. And the big risk is that if we fail to deal with the current inequalities of opportunity, uh, only the privileged will be able to have the economic freedom uh, to become free agents. And so... Decent work isn't just work that's well paid, though. So, uh, because money, I think, isn't the only reason that we work. So we can often think about work as being something that's just done in, in exchange for money. But although it's a key factor in making life sustainable, um, those of us who have a choice uh, can use work to construct our identities and to find ful fulfilment. So one of the first questions we, we ask when we first meet people is, uh, is what do you do? Um, and, uh, and there are many jobs for which people feel a vocation, no matter how poorly it might be paid. So there's a thinker called Dan Pink, um, who's probably got one of the most popular uh, TED Talks on, 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 on the TED site. Uh, his work on motivation shows the, the kind of principle of if you do this, then you get that in terms of motivation. Uh, it doesn't work for creative and conceptual tasks. It works for routine tasks, but not for those that, create, uh, that require a different kind of thinking. So this kind of work relies on more subtle and sophisticated forms of, uh, of motivation. And creative work requires people to feel fully engaged, to kind of bring uh, their, their whole life and a uh, whole understanding of life uh, to bear in the problems they're trying to solve. And so uh, Dan Pink breaks this kind of motivation down into three components, which is uh, autonomy the desire to direct our own lives, mastery, the urge to get better at something that matters to us, and purpose, the yearning to uh, 
to do what we do in service of something bigger than ourselves. And so to me, decent work provides the freedom to pursue activities that are personally motivating, uh, activity that helps in each individual reach their full potential. Um, drink. So the second part of the question is in the digital era. And uh, I believe we're not just living through an era of change, but a change of eras. So we've always had to deal with change. It's the only constant, you know, it's not a new thing. But the rate and scale of change is vastly accelerated by digital connective technology. Uh, and digital technology has been a disruptive force both negatively and positively. And so when we talk about automation, it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. And it will continue to do so as it advances beyond the screen. So uh, we might think about technology now in terms of uh, the screens that we're using, but there are vastly new and different and complex technologies coming into, um, into play. So we've got artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, 5G, uh, artificial, <laughs> sorry, virtual reality. Uh, and that requires new sets of expertise and understanding, uh, and automation will have a huge impact on, uh, on a variety of jobs, all sorts of different jobs. So there was a, a WF, uh, WEF report, The Future of Jobs, uh, and it stated that robots, automation and AI will replace 5 million human jobs by 2020, kind of globally. And those jobs most likely to be affected are those with a clear set of rules and uh, simple known solutions. So it's easy for us to think that automation uh, always means robots on the factory floor, but algorithmic automation can be applied across those jobs which are traditionally viewed as safe, well-paid middle-class jobs, such as uh, accountancy, financial analysis, that sort of thing. And so there's another study which, um, uh, done by Michael Osborne uh, into how susceptible jobs are to automation. And so they've, uh, they've quantified all sorts of different jobs uh, by activity and measured um, which ones uh, are most likely to be automated. And they've uh, identified three barriers to automation, the things that actually make it difficult to automate jobs. And uh, number one is dexterity, which uh, doesn't interest me that much, but uh, number two and three... Number two is creative intelligence. So uh, the, the need to find originality, the ability to come up with new and unusual so solutions. It makes things difficult to automate if that is the requirement. And the third one is uh, really key, I think, is social intelligence. So perceptiveness, negotiation, persuasion, caring for others, empathy. So decent work in a digital era to me is work that motivates people to reach their full potential through jobs that fully utilise their creativity and empathy. And I think that in order to get there, we need a variety of things. We need to redefine the purpose of work and the role that it plays in a flourishing society. We need to address our relationship with money and the pursuit of endless growth. We need to develop employer-employee relationships that prioritise engagement and intrinsic motivations. We need to redesign education to create a lifelong system of learning that equips students to understand what motivates them and optimises their creativity and social intelligence. And finally, we need to recognise that the skills required by a digital era are not solely about coding, but design and computational thinking, collaboration, curiosity, creativity and adaptability, and that the arts is an excellent training ground for the development of those skills. My name is Karen Cham and I am Professor of Digital Transformation Design at the University of Brighton and I'm also the academic lead for the Brighton Digital Catapult Centre. 
Um, the Catapults are an innovate-funded network of innovation hubs that aim to bring university research into contact with uh, local innovators and the SME community in order to accelerate um, growth. We are one of four catapults. The, the main digital catapult is in central London. There's one in the northeast, one in Northern Ireland. And we are the one of two del uh, delivery partners with Wired Sussex, actually. Um, so, what is important about that is that it enables people from any background whatsoever to move into manifesting their ideas with some support from government funding and also from um, the universities. And I personally feel that if we have more research involved in innovation, we've got a better chance of quantifying what the outcomes are going to be from that innovation and how those things are going to roll out in a social and economic sense. And that brings me to my um, rather long title of Professor of Digital Transformation Design. <coughs> digital is often described as disruptive, and people often um, talk about how they want to create something disruptive. But the actual potential of digital lies in the fact, not for any change, but for harnessing that change. And so digital is transformative. When it's disru it, it disrupts when it's been badly designed or not designed at all. And that brings me on to something that happened on Friday, where Uber lost its license for um, operating in London. <coughs> now, I understand they're going to appeal. Um, when they first started trading in London in 2012, I was the only person saying, this won't work, it's been badly designed. It's not been designed for deployment, it's a tech-led development, it's been designed on a desktop, and it's, um, not, it's, you know, it's going to come up against a lot of problems. It was a bit like saying that the, king, that the emperor's got no clothes. I've stood in rooms full of usually male technologists, no offence to the globes, but it's quite interesting for me to see a mixed audience because I'm usually talking to tech innovators and I'm the only girl. Uh, anyway, so it was, it was, I was saying something preposterous because everyone was so bought and sold on, economically bought and sold on this notion of disruption and we want disruption because we can make a lot of money. You can make a lot of money short term, you can disrupt a lot of livelihoods and then you can come up against legislation so, digital has the capacity to be designed to predict the outcomes that we want. So just as this paper touches on the fact that um, the gendering of certain things like the Alexa tool is female, you know, it, it's a servant, it's got a girl's voice, we can design things to create the sorts of outcomes that we want. So I'm just going to leave that at that point, but that is a really, really important point that's not very often discussed. I also want to talk about um, automation. The process of automating, the process of digitizing something turns it into code. So that necessarily su su suggests that it can then run autonomously. So once again, we have decisions in what we digitize and what we don't digitize, and we have the capacity to predict what that digitization and that capacity for automation is going to do. Now this requires us to understand it in a holistic context, in a social context, and in a human-centered context. And these are things, because a lot of technological innovation has come out of heavy industry. We, we, we're from industrial, I'm from industrial background. We make machines and then we use machines. That's not what's happening anymore. So I'd like to question in the context of automation, whether the jobs that the working class have been doing for the last century were actually human jobs anyway. And there's a fantastic book um, written by Norbert Weiner in about 1956 called The Human Use of Human Beings. 
And this reinforces what Jenny's just been saying, that the things that cannot be automated are our very human capacities. Mm. I work in AI. I've been working with intelligent machines for about 15 years. I design and build intelligent machines. You cannot build a mum. <laughs> you can't create an app that's going to look after a dementia patient. Mm. You cannot create Beethoven. I was at the Royal Albert Hall last night listening to Beethoven. You cannot create Beethoven. Yeah, from time. <laughs> well, I am. I I work with intelligent machines, so there is a degree where where digitization and um, intelligence, machine intelligence, is going to have a degree of autonomy. I personally do not believe that that is going to. Um, it's going to bring about great changes. But I personally, as a technologist who works in AI, have faith in the human capacities of human beings. So despite at the moment we're seeing, we're worrying that automation is going to impact particularly on women's jobs, a lot of the jobs that women do can never be automated, actually. So we may see a world turned on its head, which may not be a bad thing. I am a Women in STEM ambassador, a Women in Games ambassador. I'm passionate about young girls being, uh, being brought up to understand they can follow their natural interests. That, for me, ranges from caring to uh, coding, because I'm a rounded human being. And I've also come to realise my parents brought me up gender neutral, which apparently just meant they didn't say, Karen, you can't like dinosaurs and, and astronomy. You've got to like something that's a bit more female. I was allowed to be interested in dinosaurs and astronomy. So a lot of these really big questions come down to really simple daily decisions, which I'm assuming a lot of us make. My younger daughter was recently not given design and technology and um, another technical subject that she wanted as an option. She was given art and cookery. So I emailed him politely and asked to see the gender divide on the options because I'm a Women in STEM ambassador. Oh, there seems to have been some error. She has actually got the technical subject she chose. And I said, well, can I see the gender balance across your options anyway? That email is yet to be answered. <laughs> I also want to point out an absolute legend of a woman who I had the honour to share a stage with recently, Dame Stephanie Shirley, who took to calling herself Dame Steve Shirley in order to get a job in, the, in technology and maths in the 60s and the 70s. But she set up an all-female company of coders prior to the Equality Act. And after the Equality Act, she had to start employing men too. But it gave women huge flexibility in and around childcare. Um, I'm, sh I'm almost convinced that because I was in digital, I've managed to raise two children and still retain a, a senior level career because I had a huge amount of flexibility. So rather than focusing on what to worry about, I propose we embrace the opportunity not to work on a top-down model, not to do the work of machines, and to look at how these machines might augment our capacity to trade our human abilities. So that's my position for today. Um, thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Becky. And I'm going to apologise uh, for being uh, late. It was a a very long queue, and uh, um, I just got off the train from, from London, and so I'm not going to, I'm effectively not chairing this, uh, but what, when I do chair, I do make sure everyone gets a round of applause when they speak, oh, so it should be a round of applause also uh, for Karen. Can we have a round of applause?
Okay. And can I just say also that it is amazing and really great to be on an all-female uh, panel for this. Indeed, I think this is the first time I've been on an all-female panel for a subject that had anything to do with tech in its title. Yeah. And I feel like so I've had um, you know I've had two careers. Um, uh, I um, I was and I still am a chartered um, engineer, electrical engineer. Um, building, I spent 20 years building out the, um, well, effectively building out the internet before I came into politics, and uh, I now represent the city in which I grew up, uh, which is uh, the best job in the world, uh, I'd say, in terms of, in terms of good work. I, th I think I'm the only chartered engineer in Parliament, but um, if somebody else is, then please let me know. Um, and um, you know, I've said, in, in those two Careers, I've had many, many different jobs. You know, software engineer, hardware engineer, project manager, shadow minister, Newcastle <coughs> champion. Though that is a, that's not a job; that's a vocation. Um, and it's less and less common, you know, for people for people to have one job to have to go through life and to have one job. People have two or three jobs sometimes, you know, and not out of choice at the same time. And of course, you know, if, you know, I don't want to repeat what's been said, and I'm afraid I didn't um, hear uh, uh, Becky's uh, remarks, but we've been talking about the disruption, I don't know if you're keen on that term, if you like, but, or actually rather the disrupt destruction that technology um, is bringing to certain to, to, to jobs. And on that, just on that point, there is um, an economist, Hal Varian, who now works for Google, says there is only one, actually one job which has been, which has disappeared because of automation. Do you know what that is? Some people might have read his work. Do you want to guess? The one job. The nope. one job. Um, no, I think people still, they use, they, they use, they use an um, elevator, <coughs> elevator operator. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, the job is totally disappeared. Yeah, so the milkmaid's interesting, isn't it? Because you still have people who, who, who are, you know, who overseeing are milking cows, but they're using machines to help them, whereas elevator operators have totally gone in the US and the UK. I think it still exists in, in Japan. And I do think, so I agree, <coughs> I agree very uh, much with, the, well, with about everything that Karen said, but also um, I have a lot of confidence in people's ability to create work for people. Um, and I have a lot of confidence in um, people's ability to, um, to, to adapt to the changing nature of work, given the right regulatory environment and given the right uh, government. Now, when it comes to the point about skills is absolutely critical. Um, the OECD research suggests that Technology change hits those with the least education the harder, hardest. And to help people cope with this, we need, well, what we actually need is the National Education Service that my colleague Angela Rayner is putting forward, which would ensure that education is free at the point of demand all your life. Because in your life, you can have, you need many opportunities. When I was on, on the doorstep in the, general, in the general election, I met in, you know, a number of young women who had children 
who regretted their career choices such as they made it, as, as they made, or had caring responsibilities during, at a young age, and now wanted to go on and train. But past the age of 24 right now, you cannot get free education in this country. Uh, so I'm the chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Adult Education because I think this is so important. And it's been a real uh, privilege for me as the Shadow Minister for Industrial Strategy to ensure that that, uh, lifelong, that theme of lifelong learning is at the core of our industrial strategy. And as um, and has been said, the nature of work is changing. Um, I'm sure that I'm not the only person here, I hope I'm not the only person here, who was disappointed by the Taylor Review, the Taylor Review, uh, whose um, findings re truly did not go far enough. Um, what I call, because I don't, what I call the new intermediaries. I don't like the phrase gig economy. It implies that we're all, you know, performers and at the, at the cent on centre stage, and you know, generally we are not. Um, and um, the, what I call the new intermediaries, but I recognise that's not as um, that's not as catchy. Um, you know, they've been it's, their working practices have been placed in the spotlight, and such um, the dis court decisions against Uber and Deliveroo have at least raised the debates, which um, for too long. And I'm very, you know, I'm very pleased to be with a fellow um, <laughs> champion, if you like, of um, the the need for proper working employment rights in the new economy. Um, you know, the debate is happening because actually, you know, the big, the so-called gig economy is actually a productivity land grab, right? offloading risk onto workers and calling it progress. Uh, and there is a risk that this narrative is simply accepted, and we end up with what I call digital tailorism, where workers are under control, constant surveillance and algorithmic management. Uh, but there is another way, and we can stake out a future of decent work, and that is what Labour's industrial strategy is aiming to do, putting forward a vision of high-wage, high-productivity economy. Uh, and that's why sorry, I should have said that, so I'm so pleased that the Institute for De De Development Studies is having this debate here, because this is part, this is, th we are, you know, at a point where we can map out a future where it is not, if you like, it's not artificial intelligence, it's assisted intelligence. It's helping people fulfill their, helping all people, working people, fulfill their true potential, taking out the judgery out of jobs and giving the creativity and the empowerment to people. Um, or, you know, we can have this kind of Thatcherite, or shall I say Mayite, I don't know, uh, future Mayism, future um, whereby um, the, 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 the economy workers are more than ever controlled cogs in an economy over which they have more, so control, no control. Now, I'm going to finish by saying what I possibly should have said at the start, which is that I am a tech evangelist. I find myself having to say that more and more because there's more and more critiques of technology. And I do believe that tech has a real, I that tech has a, stands at a real risk of being the next big finance, be, yeah, fi uh, being the next sort of financial services whereby, or banking, whereby the reputational impact of their working practices, it, it, it means 
that they are not what people that they are not people don't want their children to go into into it. Yeah. And I think um, Uber is a really is an example of that. As much as it hasn't lost its license because of its technology, but because of its working practices, it's hiding behind tech when the problem is the rest of its business model. So I still believe that technology will change the world for the better if we have the right government in place, the right industrial strategy, and we have the vision of high-skilled, innovative jobs that Labour has committed to deliver in government. So three incredible speakers. Um, three incredible speakers there, uh, taking a really wide-ranging look at some very critical issues from a kind of philosophical perspective on what decent work means, what a good industrial strategy means, the value of um, taking a fresh look at the gig economy and how we can make that work for everybody. And I was particularly interested in, in that because often in... Um, the literature on digital development in developing countries now, the idea of digital labour is really sold as a way of addressing kind of youth unemployment in East Africa, for example. Wouldn't it be great to just farm out all this work to, um, to globally so there's a kind of, so people, it doesn't matter where you're sitting, you can still be kind of coding for a platform that's actually based in Brighton. And I think there's um, research that uh, we showcased at our event earlier in this year by um, the Oxford Institute, Institute revealed that actually there's a real race to the bottom in the digital economy and, and the way that this is working means that actually there's, um, if these uh, inequalities are really embedded in this, so mm. people are un being undercut constantly um, and it's not actually providing an incredible mechanism for economic growth, it's just a way to increase the profits. Um, whereas it could be with the kind of right regulation, this could be an engine for, for growth in many countries. So I'm going to open the floor up. Any questions, particularly on um, anything the speakers have been saying, and when, anything which looks at potentially, say, green jobs in developing countries or any other kind of developing country issues that people want to raise? Um, this gentleman here. Thank you. <coughs> I apologise for arriving late, because my wife and I spent half an hour trying to find a room. <laughs> <laughs> but can I can I say? I started writing a book called Zero Hour Contracts: Curse of the 21st Century. I've been a trade union official for many years and member of the party for 56 years. I remember I was there when Harold Wilson at Luton College of Technology said, labor and the white heat of technology. Vauxhall was the largest uh, manufacturing town for its size in the country in Luton. Letrolux, Vauxhall, SKF, all the multinationals were there. Today, we've got 4,000 working in Vauxhall, from 34, 7,000 to 4,000. Letrolux are gone, commerce gone, and many other industries have gone. And it's a service town, the airport is the largest economy, and then a council second. And I've been in touch with Gordon Brown and others about this white heat technology that Hal Wilson echoed. And I've been researching this book since. I've changed the title from Zero Contracts, Curse of the 21st Century, to Modern Day Workplace Slavery. I'm 74 and I still work as a volunteer with Unite the Union and are going to workplaces three, four times a week, the Amazons of this world, the autoglass, and I see absolute enslavement of men and women, English, Scottish, Polish, Russian, Lithuanian. That's what I see. So, Chi, you're in a responsible position, and I've lobbied Chaco Muna, 
Rachel Reeves, all the names have been given. I've asked them, they're going to write a piece for me, they're going to write the introduction for the book, and I've continued research, I'll be asking you. Now you've got this top position about the world of work to write the introduction, I'm nearly there. But I'm frightened to see what's happening in a place of work. And it's a thing that men, women, young, old, will have to take on board. It's not a man's issue, it's not a woman's issue, it's not a young or an elderly, it's society's issues. And more divided we are, the less we're able to address it. We've got to be united, the union has a role to play in this. So I do not think, I mean, I've heard all these speeches, I've stood for Parliament in 1983 in Multikin, so I'll go back some way in the movement. And I've been lobbying for work that takes so much of our time, our energy, and sets the scene of we, what we do at home, with our family, with our children, with our environment. Work plays such a big part. Tree, I hope. I'm going to hold you to your word. I wish I had a tape recorder to take your commitment. <laughs> I'm just going to stop you there to give Chuck a chance to respond and so we can take yes, a few more I'll questions. I'll answer okay. with a question then. Yeah. <laughs> as, as is normal, isn't it? Chi, would you be prepared for me to write to you to explain what I'm doing about this book, Modern Day Workplace Slavery? I'll send you the draft and I hope you'll write the introduction. <laughs> Okay, that wasn't the question I was expecting. Because <laughs> I think, I mean, you know, if I can, I'd be, I'd be very happy. I write, on, I write on this subject quite a lot, but it's not going to get decent work for people, my writing and introduction to your, to your book. And I think, I mean, I think you're right. You know, I think, I, think what, I think what happens, it's great when you get the occasional documentary, as we had the panorama and, you know, uh, Mike Ashley's, I'm, I'm going to see Newcastle this afternoon, uh, Mike Ashley's, um, you know, Sports Direct, when we see that and, and revealed, is it like, but that's happening to so many people in so many working environments, and I'm so lucky that I've always done a job which really excited and inspired me, and that is not, and that should be everybody's uh, right. So what, so what, you know, you're absolutely right that the union, these workplaces are not unionized, you know, unions have a big role, and we, as a party, we have a big role, and just to say that our, our, our industrial strategy sets out how, you know, we will create a million high-skilled high jobs, have the highest rate of high-skilled jobs in the OECD, and they will be good jobs that people can be proud to go home at night and tell and talk about. Thank you. Hi, uh, Jenny Rathbone, um, Assembly Member in Cardiff Central. Um, I, I was interested in, in a particular um, sentence in the uh, IDS uh, handout you put on our chairs, uh, where you talk about it being more economical to produce goods with fewer employees versus the same market. And I just want to say if you could say a little bit more about how, on the one hand, it, it, it would seem to me that, that we should welcome that because it will make it more sustainable in terms of us not using uh, limited resources to bring um, things all the way from the other side of the world. Um, but in, in relation to the fashion revolution mm. demands, to get to think about you know, who, who made our, our clothes, mm -hmm. how much did it cost us to make them, and why do we constantly buy clothes that we don't throw away in, in, in one day? So I, I, I want to see how, how that co couldn't be made to be a positive in the sense that we'd, we'd start producing our own goods here, but also that other countries, other 
So I think one of the really interesting um, issues about automation is the way that um, we've been talking about how automation might take away work, which actually wasn't fit for humans to be doing. So it's the, the site of closed production in um, Asia is a, a site of enormous human rights abuses and actually an area in which it's not decent work. Yeah, it has been a site of enormous economic empowerment, especially to, to young women who are working in those factories. Mm. So there's a really critical issue there. And actually, I think there's an issue in which uh, the, those countries also aren't economically prepared for the fact that automation is coming to those. So we've seen Amazon taking out, I think, taking out a patent on um, kind of 3D printing for garments. So how, what's going to replace those jobs in developing countries? When you get 3D printing for garments and you can, you can get... Um, clothes produced exactly to your specification and to your measurements, closer to home, what, what are the industrial policies for those countries where the clothing factories have been shut down? And is it a good thing because, okay, people won't be working in those factories, but what's going to be replacing those jobs? And how do you get the kind of technological innovation, which is so exciting about the work of Digital Catapult, where you're working on things like 5G and I don't know if you've got 3D printing as well, where you've got these centres that are really catalyzing this relationship between academia and industry and SMEs, how do you get, how do you kind of replicate that kind of innovation in developing countries and ensure that, that people aren't left behind? I don't know if there's anything you guys wanted to say about this particular. I think there's just a whole um, issue in and around innovation and ethics from start to finish, mm. which is a lot to do with my work at the university and in relation to the catapult. So it's a much broader question than we can address here, but there needs to be a much deeper understanding of the ethical responsibilities in and around innovation and the human impact. Yes. Mm. That's it, that's yeah. what's gone wrong with Uber, yeah. not understanding the human impact of the technology. Yeah, and I think, I think people, technology is, those who make the decisions in technology right now are not representative of the world that technology is transforming. Yeah. Yeah. Just put us lot in charge, that'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be right. Um, Jenny, did you want to say anything? Uh, the decent, the decent work aspects of it. I'm not sure if I, I, I feel unqualified to talk about um, uh, sort of the international environment, but um, I do know that um, there are instances in fashion, particularly where, um, so for instance, Hyatt Den Denim have, uh, have managed to regenerate part of uh, a, like a small town in Wales by focusing on um, delivering really high quality clothes, and so it depends on um, on how we change people's attitudes to. To, to, to fast fashion, mm -hmm. that throwaway fashion, um, and a lot of that is about cost. There should be more cost because actually the, the cost is not represented by the uh, extractive cost of the production processes. And so I think there is a, an ethics question about innovation and also about um, how we describe and value technology and, and, um, and technological innovation. So we have uh, a, a perspective around um, uh, technology companies which is largely based on an understanding of American startups so uh, we think about technology companies and we encourage the growth of, uh, of, of you know sort of uh, digital innovators in a way that actually doesn't really think about the actual value that those companies um, uh, generate so we have a model which is based on fast growth and a sale and then we celebrate those people who sell um, and where is the value uh, captured it's captured in a very small amount of people Whereas uh, the, the, the digital landscape in Brighton, for instance, is populated by um, much smaller companies who could be criticised or critiqued as having lifestyle businesses, but they might be around for 10, 15 years. They might have uh, 
um, employed hundreds of people. They might well have, uh, have produced value that's gone back into the community because they service the, this, this community. So it's how we think about technology companies and what we uh, celebrate as, as, as being valuable uh, needs to change, in my opinion. Lady in the grey top. Fantastic meeting. I mean, I'd love to put you in charge. <laughs> I, I sort of work in this space as well, and um, I love the positive um, vision that you're putting forward, but is it not the case that the fact that the business model has failed doesn't mean that a better one comes in place? I hear the wonderful local solutions you're talking about, but actually cognitive automation is borderless. So the middle class that these manual labourers who are being freed from that drudgery aspire to is being completely yeah. hollowed out. It's yeah. not the case that the global middle class, which graduates who I work with aspire to join, is full of people who are being self-actualised. There are small numbers who, who are at the high end of research, design, strategising, who are highly self-actualised, who are running digital startups. And the vast majority of graduates are going into jobs where they have no security, no professional identity. Um, you know, they're managing... More, more working hours than ever before, rather than buying into leisure and a universal basic income. So without global solidarity of some kind, how do we affect this kind of change of pattern? I mean, we know that nobody gives over a business model. It works for the few, but the nature of kind of um, the tech market is that the winner takes all, the Amazons, the Ubers. Uber doesn't care that London has thrown them out very much because it, it works across the globe. So how, how do we create a kind of global solidarity of people who are working in those situations without workplaces to go to, without the kind of history um, of cross-border kind of um, collaborative working that we might have had in factories in the Industrial Revolution? Great question. Take, I could just take a couple more. Chuck it back. Thank you. Um, to you said at the end about our really important commitment to create higher quality jobs. I suppose one of the things that really worries me is our time as Councillor and Suburb, as we look at our local economy, um, you see... <laughs> you see that we've had a massive growth in low-paid jobs, but also a massive growth in very high-skilled jobs, and a huge decline in the middle. Mm. And so it's getting harder and harder for people with low skills to progress upwards. So I'd just be interested in, actually, from all the panel, and what we can do, as it seems to me that an awful lot of technological jobs are jumping to that end, where they either want graduates, and lots of them can't recruit enough people, um, or they're creating jobs that are very low-skilled, with no self-control of what you're doing. But how do we create something that's got more in the middle so people can progress? I'll just take one more question from the lady with the red dish glasses. Um, I wanted to come back to something that um, you said about um, women work and automation and how um, lots of traditional caring uh, roles, I guess, can't be automated and how that might lead to those kind of traditional um, women's work becoming more valued. Mm -hmm. But from my... I don't know, I guess from my perspective, those were always traditionally either unpaid or unpaid roles, mm -hmm. massively undervalued. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just wondering how you bring about a situation in which those roles are become well-regarded and well-paid mm -hmm. roles because they are a major route into uh, the workplace for women. And how, yeah. how, how, how that comes about, because yes. otherwise, otherwise what we end up is, is women who are automated out of their existing roles and then end up in if I just give a brief answer to all three questions, <laughs> for, for, I can only answer from my perspective, I'm not um, a policymaker. Um, I was hypothesising that if we automate, the things we can automate are um, things that are not usually done, you know, simple rule-based um, manufacturing 
and all the rest of it, that, that those are things that are simple to automate. So what interests me is the what is not simple to automate and the in potential implication of how those traditional um, roles, be tasks become more valuable. I don't know whether that's what's going to happen, but it's a potential hypothesis given the, the variables in the situation. Um, for me, um, it's all about quantifying uh, what we are doing. Digital affords us huge capacity to quantify and predict outcomes. So before, um, you know, Uber knew when they went to market that they'd be blowing loads of cab drivers out of work. You know, that's, that's legislative. I could have run a simulation and told you that and given you maths that said, this is illegal. So if I can write code that's going to prove something's illegal, that's what I'm interested in doing. And also, just to add, my expertise is in human factors. And this could potentially be something that everyone has to demonstrate before they get a license to go to market. Shows you human factors research. Jenny knows what I'm on about. We, we test these things on people. We know how people respond, and we know how societies, uh, we can simulate how gatherings of people respond before we even deploy. <clears throat> so it's not that the companies don't know, it's that they don't care. So if we can quantify, and, and I don't know whether we'll see those jobs, those non-quantifiable tasks becoming more valuable, but hypothetically it's possible. Sure. Okay. Um, well, uh, yeah, I, I suppose I mean, they're fantastic questions, and I'm not um, <laughs> claiming to have uh, the answers. But I, I think just to take to reiterate, when I say when I have confidence in the, the ability of people to create work for people, there is lots of um, if you like unmet need. You know, in fact, for example, I would certainly pay. I would pay someone to look after my data for me who wasn't Google. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, not, not maybe yeah. not a lot of money, yeah. but you know, yeah, it's yeah. A, so I do think there are, I think there is the potential for, for mid skilled jobs out there, but we haven't, the, the economy, uh, um, the new economy, if you like, is in structure to create them. And I think you said something really interesting when you said the nature of the tech market is winner take all. Mm -hmm. Now, I work for Re Ofcom, the regulator of communications for its head of technology uh, before, that was my last job in the real world, before coming into politics. You know, the nature of networks is winner take all, which is why networks are the most heavily regulated sectors you know, in, in, any, in an economy, because they are not, they are the least susceptible, if you like, to free, free market. Um, yeah. And um, that, so, reg, you know, utilities, water networks, electricity networks are all are heavily regulated. And we need to regulate the, um, the winner-take-all uh, markets, like Facebook, which is, you know, which is a winner-take-all, so, so that there is either more competition or consumers, users are in more control of, of what is happening. And there's a great article in The Economist uh, this week which basically says we should regulate Facebook like uh, sewage, which I think is, you know, has many merits um, to it. Um, and, um, yeah, so I think, uh, so, uh, yeah, it is, it's about having the right government, having the right regulation, having the right long-term view, if you like, of what our values are. And I think a Labour government uh, can do that. I don't think, I think the, the Tories have no idea. And if you see some of the responses of Tory MPs 
to the Uber decision, you just realise they have no bloody idea about Just to say, those values can be built in code. That's a technical <coughs> fact. Uh, I suppose I'd, I'd like to say that, um, that there's an opportunity for us to work together in different and better ways. And so um, that the collaboration um, between different parts of the system doesn't necessarily exist in the way that it should now. So um, you might well feel that the technology sector is kind of running away. But that's because a lot of other people are left behind in terms of their understanding about what this stuff is. And so we all might be carrying around the internet in our pockets and be you know, kind of gleefully using our iPhones and feeling like, yes, we understand technology. But how many people actually know how it works? Mm. Um, uh, what is the cloud? So we have terminology which, um, which uh, has become all prevailing, but actually um, there's very little understanding of what it really means. The cloud isn't the cloud, it's data centers in Iceland, you know, which uh, are servers locked in cages with people with guns protecting that data because it's a resource, you know, it's valuable. And, uh, and, and yet, you know, we have language which, which doesn't tell you what this stuff really is and we don't know who controls that and what law and legislation is actually controlling data and data is one of the biggest resources that we've got so my concern I think is that um, we aren't individually and societally uh, putting enough effort into digital understanding mm. into actually raising children but also accepting that us middle-aged people uh, need to understand stuff too yeah. so um, we need to be able to understand what our children are using but we also need to be able to critique it culturally about um, what the impact of this stuff is uh, and that is uh, something that I see as being most important in terms of policy makers. So I'm worried about uh, the people who are making these decisions and how much they actually understand about what is possible and, and, and what the good stuff is, like how you get to the good stuff. But I'm also uh, concerned about uh, business leaders. So people making economic decisions um, about this stuff very often, I've, I've, I've met clients who, who, who will get their emails printed out by the secretary. You know, like that stuff, you kind of think there are people at the top of big companies making decisions that they are not qualified to make. And so uh, I, I would echo, I think, Martha Lane Fox's call uh, for a program of digital understanding, and it has to be really far reaching, and we all have to commit to it. Just wanted to say quickly, oh, do you want to say a word? Okay. Just to say quickly that the issues of uh, hollowing out of the labour force, of the issue the gentleman was talking about, of the factory being shut down, the Vauxhall factory being shut down in Newton, these are issues take it at a local scale and then scale it up. Take, take the call centre in the Philippines, which is going to be shut down in five years' time because the voice recognition software is getting so good that your call can be answered by a computer instead. Take the clothing factory in Bangladesh, which is going to be shut down because the uh, 3D printing. So these are all issues, the hollowing out of the middle class, these are all issues which we can look at locally, but I think it's our job at IDS and for um, in people in international space to think about globally. So I'm just going to take a couple more questions, and then we're going to ask them something else. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay, Melissa? Oh. Yeah, um, question about economy, really. I mean, I love this conversation, and as an anthropologist, the ethics, the values, the ways that innovation can actually create different kinds of work that are meaningful to people, absolutely where I am. But is it going to do it for enough people at the scale and speed required? Do we also need to be thinking, okay, turn to another technologist, in the kinds of proposition that Bill Gates has thrown out, that we should be taxing the robots or those who produce them? 
and using those revenues to fund universal basic income, which can compensate for lost jobs. I'd be really interested in what the panel has to say about these, as it were, more brute economic solutions, which lie actually in some fundamental economic policy, um, as well as the extremely interesting suggestions that are being made about the opportunities for the digital world to create transformed, valued kinds of work that enable us all, some of us, to self-realisation. Just one more question from the lady with the glasses. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I was really glad to um, hear you talking about uh, the American model and how we've been basing our views on uh, how the tech industry should work um, uh, on that. Um, and you know, to me, I, I think that companies exist to, to serve society. Um, and I was wondering, what do you think, what role do you think a government can play in actually, um, rather than stepping in uh, after the fact, um, what role can, do you think government can play in actually promoting the creation of organisations um, that serve society rather than the other way around. So I'm just going to take some quick responses to that and then we're going to have some summing up because we're going to get booted out. Okay. Uh, there's too many uh, sort of um, uh, really great things to think about in all the mm. questions, so I'm getting a little bit um, uh, overwhelmed, to be honest. But um, <laughs> there are... Um, there are I'm really interested in new types of organisations, new kinds of organisations that actually... Um, uh, there needs to be a cost in terms of extraction and a benefit in terms of benefit, as in creating social value. Um, and at the moment, I don't think that companies are encouraged to um, or uh, motivated economically at all to uh, represent the extractive cost and, um, and the social benefit they can provide. So um, I would like to see a policy that, that focuses on that. So, um, and there's also um, this idea, yes, we should be taxing the robots. Um, there is value being created by automated jobs, um, but that value is then sitting in the hands of a few. And uh, that doesn't make sense at all. So, um, so there's a massive then cost of, um, of a society that is um, underemployed. Um, and a few people who are wealthy enough maybe to be like Bill Gates to create a foundation where he kind of gets to have largesse and solve the world's problems. There are no lack or there's no lack of big challenges um, for technology companies to, um, uh, to solve. We have massive challenges all around us at the moment. They're incentivised to make money by creating digital litter, like shit, you know, that, that, that we use for no good reason or don't, doesn't get used. So I think we need to incentivise more Elon Musk's we need to incentivise people to be looking at those kind of big challenges which actually do affect us all and will help us um, solve them. Um, anyway, lots of good things to say. Yeah, I think as well the notion of taxing robots or promoting the development of companies that are socially serving, these are uh, design questions. Mm -hmm. It's very, very simple to understand how digital technology works. It's got about five attributes. I could write it on a post-it note. So what it requires is for people who are making the policy to understand those five attributes and make decisions that create the outcomes that we want. We're not creating the tools, we're creating outcomes. And the tools are either enabling or constraining the outcomes. So it's again about focusing on the human first. Uh, yeah, these, are really, these are really big questions. Um, but the answer, <laughs> I'm going to sound like a bit of a cliche here in saying, that the answer is a progressive government because government has the tools to address, I believe, most of these, these, these issues. Um, it, you, talking about organizations that don't serve society, you know, 
Companies are absolutely dependent on society. They're depending on an education system, which means that you can, they can recruit people skilled enough to design um, smartphones, but also skilled enough to use them. You know, they're, they're dependent on a tax and legal framework, which means that um, you know people don't rob all their shops. So they are depending on transport infrastructure. So what what? What a progressive government needs to do is to make that relationship a little bit more evident, uh, and um, yeah, and you can do that in a number of ways, yeah, including a tax. So I'm not I'm not so sure we need to tax robots. We just need to tax companies properly, you know, <laughs> whatever that you know. What uh, I mean, yeah, you know, maybe there might there might be an idea. There might be a thing about you know defining robots as a capital asset. Which, but I think you know I think we need a proper we need a proper uh, tax. A proper fair tax environment. So what? But we do need to set up. So one of the things that we're looking at, I talk about, you know, our mission. The industrial strategy is based on missions. One of the missions is to create an innovation nation. You know, and that's going to increase R and D spend to three percent of the of GDP. But we don't. That doesn't mean we don't want that just simply to go to scientists and those at the top. It needs to be re replicated throughout. Society, which is why we talk about creating a million better jobs, and also supporting cooperative models. Now, the co-op is doing so. The co-op is doing some really great things around shared data ownership and benefit. You know, and in, in supporting and encouraging, I think, digital capital. You know, and models like that, um, yeah, as well as you know, taxing companies properly. <laughs> Yeah, just to add, we are, the Catapult in Brighton is setting up a 5G testbed where we are exploring next generation products and services. But one of our work packages is about who holds on to the rights to use the bandwidth. Mm. So one of the things we're going to be arguing for is a collective communal access to some of the bandwidth. Because mm. at the minute it's all owned by the big, big telecoms companies. Mm. Well, I'd say as a... Ex Ofcom. Uh, yes. It's not owned <laughs> by them. They, okay. they, they leased, but they did buy the rights to the use licenses. it. The licenses. Yeah. But I mean, they uh, yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, it's locked down, isn't it? Yeah, well, we're yeah. trying to make sure it's not locked down, which yeah. is a start towards some sort of collective ownership. But we need to be looking at the, the infrastructure that enables that as being, uh, should be uh, nationally accessible in the same way as electricity or, or, or water is um, in terms of kind of access to broadband for instance we wouldn't we wouldn't stand for uh, small pockets of Wales or uh, Devon or Cornwall or whatever and actually not having access to water or electricity mm -hmm. and yet for some reason they you know you can't access broadband in certain areas <laughs> some reason is really bad regulation <laughs> and the, the, the 2010 labor manifesto I know it's going to help I helped write it at Ofcom the, the commitment to universal um, universal broadband access for everyone by 2012, which the Tory government tore up because they wanted to give um, high-speed broadband to a few and not pay for it properly, basically. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we were very lucky to have people with the, uh, the actual expertise to understand these issues. So we, we've only got five minutes left, so I just wanted to sum up and then ask the um, panellists for their final contributions. And I think for me this raises lots of interesting questions, and again it comes from this local to global thing, that do we have the political will, not just at a national level, but in terms of the global institutions, mm -hmm. are, do we have the political will and the, and, the, and the tools to hold these companies to account? So I've been doing some work on the International Labour Organisation, which is um, 
100 um, in 2019. Do institutions, that you, you global institutions like the ILO, which have done so much work to put to cement workers' rights, do they have a hope to, to, at securing labor's, uh, workers' rights in South Africa when they're up against the likes of Facebook and Uber? Do we need new kinds of political conversations and new kinds of uh, ways of dealing with these kind of... They, they are global issues um, to hold in terms of how we hold these companies to account, who owns our data, and all these issues which are, which are very, very opaque. Who benefits from the digital economy? So um, connectivity is an issue which is very politically charged, very, very hot topic in development, and it's, I mean, it comes back to these, these issues of can you have... Um, who's going to use the white space? Who's going to use the white space in um, uh, TV signals? Is it better to have local uh, uh, mini-grids operating uh, connectivity and um, power? So there's, I think we need, we need new kinds of thinking, new kinds of people into the conversation to, to, for, for, this, for this new era, this new digital networked era. And we all need to understand it better. I think one of the things that's come across on this panel is that we've got, we understand this stuff. We understand that our cloud, our, the, the cloud isn't in space. The cloud is on a computer. It's just on someone else's computer. But there isn't a, that general level of understanding, particularly with policymakers. And that's a global problem, not just a national problem. Mm -hmm. So, Jenny, I'll start with you. If you've got any kind of closing, closing thoughts. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got a brainful to be honest. But um, <laughs> I think um, what's interesting for me about this is that it's a really complex system. So um, we're talking about um, trying to change a whole system uh, and a system that overlaps into all sorts of other systems. And so uh, the, the biggest lever we can pull is to frame um, what's the purpose of this system. And so um, uh, and the big question for me now is which system is it? I think work and education are uh, fundamentally intertwined. Um, and, uh, and so to be clear about what kind of world we're trying to end up with and to be really clearly stating what we think the purpose of work is so um, I don't think all of the answers reside at the top. Um, I don't think it's possible in a world as complex and as fast-moving and as challenging as this that, um, that we can expect all of the answers to sit in a small group of people at the top. I also think that those people can't possibly process the amount of information it would take to make a really good sort of set of changes. So I believe there needs to be a more participative pr approach, a way of engaging those people um, who are uh, not just the, uh, you know, the massive multinational corporations, but um, actually lots of people working on the ground who do have a really good level of understanding and to feed that back and to collaborate more better together. Um, yeah, I think also uh, we keep saying digital skills without really defining what we mean and there are so about five, six different components of what digital skills mean. It might just be, you know, sort of uh, giving people access to the internet but it might actually be more about a kind of fundamental understanding of what digital means and what the future can hold, as well as the ability to code. Uh, and digital skills tends to kind of get put under the banner of just all kids should learn to code, and it's, that's not complex enough. Cheers, mm -hmm. thank you. Would you two ladies go first? Yes, I don't mind. Yeah. Uh, well, for me, it's about, um, it's about ownership and access. And um, a lot of the big, um, let's say the first wave of big tech companies are effectively running cartels. We already have existing legislation for loads of this stuff, but for some reason over the last 20 years, everyone goes, oh, it's on the internet, I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> it's the same problem, it's a monopoly. Um, I personally um, believe, well, actually, I want to, I'm just going to end on a really uh, interesting note that you might not expect from a technologist. Would, what sort of fair work model would we see if we had the Enclosure Acts repealed? Because from between 600, 1600 to 1900, 
seven million acres of common land was taken away from common people. That's a really important fact that never gets mentioned because we wouldn't need any of this discussion if we had the right to live off the planet that we were born on. Now, I don't expect the next Labour government can crack that. <laughs> but it's the same issue. It's not no longer about land. It's about signal. It's about territory. But we have a right to these things by virtue of being human beings. Who's got it? Who do you think? The posh people. No. <laughs> it went to uh, the it went to la landowners. He was still ripping the benefits. Yeah, households. I don't know. We didn't. I didn't get anything. Nobody in my family's got anything they haven't paid for. Yeah. So the point being, there's an ethical issue in and around access and ownership of most assets, and this is the same question again as it was in 1750. Follow that. Well, actually, um, <laughs> so it's it's actually we used to say that here. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 so the, the difference between, because I look at the enclosures as well as the Industrial Revolution, the difference be between the first, the, the enclosure acts and the first Industrial Revolution as well, where all the value in the first Industrial Revolution initially went to the, you know, the mill owners, etc., is that now we have a semi-functioning democracy. Mm. People can vote. Mm. The, the, the serfs or whoever couldn't vote about the, the enclosure and the people the, who worked in the mills couldn't vote either because you had to have a had to be a homeowner to vote male or female of course women couldn't vote at all yeah. so uh, so so we you know, that is why there is the, I think there is the opportunity to make this technological revolution different from the previous ones exactly democratic uh, of course you need a democratically elected government who gets this and who wants the outcomes uh, that you are talking about. And I, you know, I, I like to say that I went into um, politics in 2010 for exactly the same reasons I went into engineering 20 whatever <laughs> years previously, and that's to make the world work better for everyone. And I think we can do that, we can do that, but we do need to hold these global tech companies to account. I think the question was asked, how do we, you know, how, what purchase we have on them? You know, when I first came into politics in 2010, I was, you know, like you, the idea of regulating the internet was like, oh, you can't do that, it's international. Well, you know what, we do have these international organisations. <laughs> One of them's called the European Union. And a fine of whatever billion on Google actually does have an impact. Now, of course, we are... Um, leaving the European <laughs> Union, but, you know, we, uh, I think the fact that it's international means that we need international organisations coming together um, to um, uh, uh, address it and to um, help empower people, and I think it's actually right, it's going to be grassroots, help empower people by giving people control over their data and their technology. Great, thank you. Thank you to our amazing panel and to, for being a great audience. Thank you very much.